Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community to listen to sports physiotherapist Adam Meekins. Adam has extended scope privileges. He's been an invited speaker at several major conferences during 2016, and he runs very popular workshops on the shoulder, both in the UK and internationally. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you very much for inviting me back for a second time round, uh, Karim. And so what are a couple of take-homes from your experience travelling to various places and meeting with many members of our community before we hit a couple of specifics on shoulder management? The three key themes that I've got that um, people are starting to recognise and clinicians are starting to recognise, you know, that we've got to try and understand that although a lot of humans and anatomy and biomechanics and injuries is a, is a complex area, their management and treatment doesn't have to be. And I'm beginning to see, thankfully, because it fits with my biases really well, the uh, value of maximising good, honest, simple, clear advice and education first and foremost. Again, I think about how we need to, with people in pain and discomfort, to try and look at them as a whole person rather than just as an injured area. So there is a tendency as uh, healthcare clinicians for us to, to get tunnel vision and focus down on just one particular area, be that a painful shoulder or a torn ACL or a bit of back pain rather than looking at the uh, person as whole and all the other factors around it that, that we could be addressing and encouraging to help them through the situation that they're currently in. I find, again, the key message from all the conferences and all the sort of leaders in the um, uh, sports medicine field and pain management field is uh, how we got to try and generally encourage movement and this uh, hashtag a movement for a movement with a recent editorial that um, a few of us have worked on is in trying to promote that message even further and trying to see if we can uh, encourage healthcare practitioners to maximize every opportunity to encourage get that message across to people uh, when they come and see us for whatever reason. This movement for a movement, that's the physical activity, the exercises, medicine part of physiotherapy, or do you think it embraces movement uh, in the clinic with exercises specifically? Yeah, I think it covers both fields. So, you know, um, promoting movement for generic health purposes, but also looking at a bit more globally when we're dealing with people with specific injury problems because there is this tendency to believe that there is one particular exercise that is better than another and the more I've read around the literature and the research the more I've realized that's not so much the case um, that the exercise you choose for an individual who's in pain has to be selected on lots of different factors and it's not so much about what the clinician thinks is best for the patient but probably a bit more about what the patient thinks is best for them so again the best exercise i always find is the exercise that is going to be done because fundamentally if they're not getting the exercise done it doesn't matter what we suggest fantastic so let's you know, drill into those three themes then the role of good advice and education, treating the patient as a whole person, and last tips on encouraging movement, Adam. So what are some concrete pearls for our listeners on the type of good advice and education? What have you found to be particularly effective in your clinic? Well, 
keeping it simple certainly um, helps. So we know that patients do get overwhelmed by medical jargon and terminology. So we have to consistently try and avoid that and explain things as simplistically, but also as honestly as we possibly can. Um, so having a good understanding of the evidence base helps with being able to uh, interpret the options available for a patient when it comes to deciding what the management program is best for them. So I think that's important. And also the other side of it is avoiding harmful or nocebic uh, language when we explain things. And again, I think that's something that's uh, becoming more promoted in 2016. So the value and the emphasis of the words that the healthcare profession uses uh, sometimes as, uh, as, a, as a dark side. So terms like that's torn, that's split, that's wonky inflamed and when you give advice in your clinic adam do you have set handouts to use some of the software programs um i think you know giving written information um is is helpful but generic information sometimes can come across to some patients as being a little bit flippant and uncaring and again developing that uh, therapeutic alliance with a patient again is something i've found that helps encourage compliance and uh, outcomes as well and it's okay to mention brands here if it's what you use. I'm sure you're not getting paid by them to use it. And no. you might talk about the categories. So which software have you found useful and which categories do you think people should look at? Um, well, I use a, a software um, physio tools package, which is a just a click and paste thing that you can uh, uh, put one or two exercises onto a little handout for a patient to take away. So I routinely use that. But the simplest thing to do is to record the patient doing their exercises on their own phone. Most patients nowadays have video phones and it's what they tend to look at more than anything else. So I record their exercises on their own phone. Does it take long? Do you book sort of 45 minute patients or an hour? Like what's the setup in your clinic to be able to do this personalized care, Adam? No, I, I work in a couple of different settings uh, in the NHS as a, uh, an extended scope practitioner where my time is limited to around 15 minutes with a patient. Um, and I can still record a couple of exercises on the phone there. And then in private practice, I have a bit longer, um, anywhere between 20 to 30 minutes, um, where I do have a little bit more leeway. But it doesn't take long to quickly get a phone recording of them doing a couple of simple exercises. And just other practical tips on the advice and education, Adam, what are some other things you find particularly useful? Are there some things you find yourself getting to consistently on advice or education? Let's keep it with shoulders. Yeah, um, well, I tend to um, try and uh, consult the patient and um, sort of give them the guidance about how there's many quick fixes promoted out there for various different things where from my experience and reading the literature, there is no such thing as quick fixes. And despite people's claims, they tend to be a waste of time, energy, money and effort. So I counsel the patients against the woo and the quackery and the guru a lot of the time. So that comes very heavily under my uh, uh, advice and guidance. And, and then another part that I tend to spend a lot of time on is discussing the role of pain during rehab about how 
unfortunately for a lot of the conditions we see we can't avoid pain to get people better but again de-threatening pain and explaining that pain isn't dangerous if it's controllable if it's manageable and flare-ups happen and there's peaks and troughs but it's something that we have to educate patients better because patients do worry and panic when they have a flare-up so i'm a big believer of making sure that patients are aware of what will possibly and probably happen during their rehab journey i'm sure you're asked as i am how much pain is okay how should the patient monitor pain and what do you suggest we say for that one to the young clinicians Yes, a tricky question to answer simplistically because um, pain tolerance is as individual as facial shape. So I have to gauge, you know, how fearful, how worried a patient is about pain to give a sort of guidance. So the more fearful, more worried the patient is, the less likely I am to say to push into significant pain. If a patient's a little bit more um, compliant and is a little bit more um, less fearful, then I would say they can they can push a bit more into pain. Um, but I always stress, you know, that it has to be within their tolerance levels, and all pain has to try to reduce back to baseline after any activity within a 24-hour window. So that's normally a sort of good ballpark figure that I try and get my patients to respect. So when they do the rehab, they do their activity within their tolerance zones and visual analog scales can help and I think anything above three or four on a 10 scale when you're doing rehab is probably the limit Um, maybe a bit less for those fearful patients and any flare-up afterwards settled within 24 hours. How do you judge fearfulness? Um, It's based on a bit of uh, gut instinct and clinical intuition I suppose Um, So the terminology that a patient uses is a big um, clue when a patient starts to use terms like pain is harmful or damaging then I start to realize that they may have a sort of a high fear factor around pain Um, so those type of um, sort of key indicators sort of guide me. Adam, you're leading to this, in any case, that just dealing with the patient as a complete individual and I think really the biopsychosocial model. What are the take-home messages for the young clinician on that domain for you, Adam? Yeah, I think when we're understanding how important the biopsychosocial model is, is, is not to be swayed to more, one way more than the other. So it's trying to find the balance between all three parts, the bio, the psycho, and the social aspects. So we had the pain paradigm and looking at the psychology behind pain, which got a sort of swayed and got a lot of us swayed, me included, uh, down that road. And, and there's no doubt that has helped us astronomically, but we still have to respect and acknowledge the biology and the biomechanics as well in the biopsychosocial approach. So I stress nowadays to all clinicians is it's the skill of a good therapist, of a good healthcare clinician is finding that balance between all three aspects of the biopsychosocial approach and trying to work out, you know, is this more a biology, biomechanic type problem? Is this more a psychology, psychological problem? Are there any tips on how you 
do that matrix when you're listening to a patient, like to a shoulder patient, let's say I've got rotator cuff pain and I've had it for four weeks and I've got a job that I think might be contributing to it, I'm a painter, do those things influence your sort of filter when you're thinking whether it's biopsycho or social? Yeah, um, sort of different um, employment um, issues, so whether they enjoy their job, whether they rely on their job for income or whether they're sick pay, all these factors can start to build up a, a picture of whether there's psychological involvement in this pain. Um, patient reported outcome measures as well can give you some indicators as to how much psychology and sort of central sensitivity is contributing to the pain. Um, so I tend to sometimes, if I'm still not certain, use some report, uh, patient reported outcome measures. So I quite like the uh, pain detect questionnaire to sort of see if there is more peripheral versus uh, central pain mechanisms. But it's a simple little tick box questionnaire and there's a cutoff score of around 19. And if they score above 19, then you start to suspect sort of more centralization of their pain. So you tend to think that there's more or less nociceptive peripheral issues and more central factors. Give us some magic exercises even though i know you've got blogs about favorite and unfavorite exercises so what pearls do you have for our listener um i i think trying to avoid having favorite and unfavorite exercises is probably a good start so my thinking has changed probably since i wrote those blogs a couple of years ago now that i very much used to demonize a certain exercise purely because of biomechanical reasons but the more I've looked in and researched and read around things, I am finding that my clinical reasoning is on shaky ground. So as I say, I, I say no exercise or activity is off limits within reason because there are some clearly stupid and daft exercises where the patient just will not be able to reproduce them or do them to any sort of level of effectiveness so we have to make sure that say the exercise is going to be done so my magic exercise for anything for any patient for any clinician is pick an exercise that the patient's going to do the key factor is is something that targets the tissue that i know needs exposure to load um, that is global compound but also a movement but is also meaningful for the patient so if we take the shoulder as a perfect example a lot of painful shoulders can't elevate they can't reach so reaching is a classical exercise i give and in lots of different ways and variable sort of um, methods of doing it so i had a a young lady today where she was struggling to pick her child up off the floor and place her into the cot because of this shoulder pain so we practiced doing some activities in and around that type of movement where she was having to crouch down she was having to pick a weight up and then pull the will push the weight out away from her body and we just exposed her shoulder to progressive gradual overload to that until we got to the point where she started to say this was becoming more challenging but it's still acceptable for her and I said there's your exercise take that away and practice it so it's a very non-specific uh, type of uh, prescription 
um, much different from a different type of patient who would be a more of an athlete who's got a very uh, much more sort of different mentality where they need that um, more specific um, exercise prescription. You've been doing shoulder workshops for three years internationally and nationally and lots of good feedback from them. How's that changed your perspective either for how you teach it or on things you've learnt in the ways the audience has changed? Um, I think it's been quite interesting to travel a little bit of the world and see how different therapists have different views and opinions on certain things. Uh, you tend to find there are some um, countries that have still a little bit more trouble letting go of just the purely structural biomechanical model. Um, but I think, again, the general sort of gist I'm getting is that people are recognising, back to what we said earlier on, about how the other factors are probably just as important in dealing with painful shoulder problems, the psychology, the sociology, there are other health issues, um, as well as the loading and everything in and around the rotator cuff and the shoulder muscles. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting couple of years um, and it's good to try and get this more simplified message that although we're dealing with complex conditions, with complex um, psychology and human beings being inherently complex, their management and treatment doesn't have to be. Thanks a lot, Adam. We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, Grim. That was Adam Meekins, who you can follow on Twitter at Adam Meekins, has a terrific blog and was kind enough to do a couple of editorials for BJSM. Thanks for being part of the editorial team, Adam, and for giving us this podcast today. Thanks for listening to the BJSM podcast. And if you're listening to this towards the end of 2016, I hope you have a healthy, safe and physically active uh, Christmas. And remember, you can't outrun a bad diet. Bye.